G'day. I'm Glenn Davis, and this is The Policy Shop, a place where we think about policy choices. And in this episode, the US election. Have the politics of personality trumped, leaving the election of the most powerful leader in the world a policy-free zone? We will make America great again. I made a mistake using a private email. That's for sure. Um, And if I had to do it over again, I would obviously do it differently. Um, But I'm not going to make any excuses. It was a mistake, and I take responsibility for that. That was more than a mistake. That was done purposely. Okay, that was not a mistake. That was done purposely. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. In the 1990s, I went to Beijing and I said, women's rights are human rights. He insulted a former Miss Universe, Alicia Machado, called her an eating machine. And on the day when I was in the Situation Room monitoring the raid that brought Osama bin Laden to justice, he was hosting The Celebrity Apprentice. We have some bad hombres here and we're gonna get them out. The looming appointment of a U.S. Supreme Court judge? How will America lead and act on climate change? A Middle East devoured in bitter fighting. Just a small sample of the issues waiting the next resident of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Yet in the campaign, it's been about Hillary's deleted emails and Donald's personality. A recent US study showed that actual issues, policy issues, took up less than 9% of media coverage and the candidate's qualifications for the presidency accounted for even less. So today we're testing whether the lack of policy discussion is, as it appears, worse than usual. And if so, why? And what might we be missing out on as a result? To discuss these issues, I'm joined on Skype from Berkeley in the United States by Thomas Mann, a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution and a resident scholar at the Institute of Governmental Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Happy to be with you. And two guests in the studio, Associate Professor Barbara Keyes of the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Barbara. Pleasure to be here. And also in the studio, we have Associate Professor in American Politics and Director of the Graduate School of Humanities and Social Sciences at the University of Melbourne, Tim Lynch. Welcome, Tim. It's great to be here. So to make sense of this election, I suspect we need to step back and ask about a fundamental change to the Republican Party. Tom, in your book, It's Worse Than It Looks, written in 2012 with Norm Ormstein, you argued that the Republican Party had moved into a vehemently adversarial stance, driven in part by the Tea Party. The result, you suggested, is a Republican Party, and I quote, unpersuaded by the conventional understanding of facts. The book earned some very hostile commentary on the right, but is the Donald Trump ascendancy a vindication of your analysis? I'm sorry to say it is. Uh, the uh, Donald Trump is the most uh, inexperienced, uh, uninformed, uh, and purposely so, uh, uh, and unsuited, uh, ill-suited person to uh, garner a major party nomination for the presidency in in American history. Uh, And his candidacy 
I think, was possible only through the Republican Party, which uh, in recent years has become less a conservative party than a radical party, uh, one rejecting and indeed contemptuous of the inherited policy regime and dismissive of the legitimacy of its political opposition. They made promises to get into the majority in the House and eventually the Senate, promises that could never have been kept with Barack Obama in the White House and a veto in hand. Uh, And now it's come back to haunt them. Um, It's like riding the back of a tiger and suddenly finding yourself inside of that tiger. Uh, Donald Trump saw the opportunity uh, appealing in large part to to those Americans left behind by technology and globalization with lots of legitimate concerns and other resentments about not just economic matters, but but really social and cultural matters. And he uh, just rode roughshod over the other 16 candidates for the Republican nomination and ended up with uh, with the party's nomination. And all I can say is that the blessing uh, is that we we're on the verge of escaping uh, this uh, experiment with uh, a demagogue and an authoritarian. Uh, all things now point to a comfortable uh, uh, victory for Hillary Clinton, but. Uh, Trump's uh, presence underscores the the Republican Party as the most problematic force in our politics right now, and it's not obvious uh, how this story will end. So, how does a party become so unmoored from the conventional mainstream? It's a good question. It uh, it took decades for this to happen. I'd say the most critical factor was developments uh, back in the 1960s, uh, most importantly, the one involving race with the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, which uh, blew up the long-term democratic coalition of northern liberals and southern conservatives and really created room for a, a Republican Party that was on one side of a number of critical divides in, in American politics having to do with race and, and religion uh, in particular. And this then slowly developed into a party that really became so vehemently anti-government that you wouldn't recognize uh, the pillars of the Republican Party and the Congress in the 60s and 70s that played such a pivotal, constructive role in in policymaking. They uh, eventually retired or were defeated. The party became much more ideologically distinctive. And a a whole world grew up around the sort of ideology and approach. The uh, cable networks, the Fox News, eventually the social media, talk radio was a big force in in reinforcing uh, the direction in which the party was moving. Newt Gingrich uh, 
who entered Congress after the 1978 election had a plan when he arrived uh, to gain the Republicans' majority status after decades in the wilderness by basically discrediting the institution of which of which they were a part. And that sort of set in motion the loss of civility, the, the anger, the conspiratorial uh, uh, disposition of, uh, of many Americans and, and Republicans. And in the end, it, it almost became a post-policy party, not because they didn't have ideological objectives, but but because they weren't serious about policy, as from the line that you mentioned in, in introducing me, they, they were simply unaccepting of conventional understandings of facts, evidence, and, and science. They were scornful of compromise. They, they believed they had the one true ideological mission, and they didn't need to mess with the details of uh of policy development, uh, much less implementation. And uh, our system of checks and balances, uh, unlike a parliamentary system, really requires two governing parties, presumably one left of center, one right of center, but both of whom are all in when it comes to the process of, uh, of negotiating and Ultimately, having some influence over uh, over policy, but uh, with Obama's election as president, they they became simply an opposition party to oppose whatever he proposed, even if they had favored it a few years uh, earlier. And that's that has led to the dissent and dysfunction of American politics. So it's very hard to have a debate when you've only got one side arguing. Barbara, do you accept that this is the fundamental shift that's changed American politics? There's certainly many long-term developments that have been going on in the Republican Party that help us understand, as Tom has said, that the oppositional nature, the, the anti-government theme. I, I think if you think about whether this particular campaign is exceptional enough to constitute a break with the past, I would suggest that if you think just about the role of traditional media, it's probably not. Because it, let's take a, just a brief look at 1960 when we have the first televised presidential debates between Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy. They're remarkable to watch. You can watch them on YouTube and you have these two candidates standing up and giving these remarkably detailed and eloquent uh, expositions of their policy positions. But on the other hand, what does the media say about the debates? Well, they're fixated on what Nixon looked like, that he was sweating, that he, people seemed to think he had a shifty look, that he was tired looking, that he was gaunt looking, that he might ha not have the strength to be president. And even then, they're talking about who's winning and who's losing. So they're, they're fixating not on policy, not on who is making better arguments about which solutions are going to be better solutions to particular problems, but about these more entertainment value issues around these debates. Tim, a fundamental break from the past? No, I, I don't think so. And we, uh, we, we should avoid the, uh, the, the uh, slippage into historical elitism. In some way, what we're living through is, in, is brand new. I think you could identify 
this before, and I think Arrow is a very good example, 1960. I, I have been teaching Tom's book um, since it was published, and I'm very persuaded by it. I just don't think it, it uh, I think it's incomplete, um, and particularly his, uh, his, his comments to start this podcast, because I think you could apply some of the analysis to the Democratic Party as well. And the idea that Democrats are one cohesive unit that deify facts and science and haven't become wildly ideological, I think is, is problematic. So I don't think it's, a, it's, it's blaming one side or the other. I think both parties in the United States, for a number of reasons, but not least because they are extremely broad churches. In Australia, we have six political parties, many more than that, but six major parties, two of which must unite to form government. Uh, and we only have 24 million people, the size of Texas, whereas the United States has 330 plus million people. And it uh, has two parties and always has had two parties with very limited exceptions. And from those two parties, some sort of consensus within them must be generated to, in order to win national office. And when one, in one of those moments, when one of those great parties, the grand old party, is having a struggle over what it should look like, and it's responding not just to sectional differences, but to demographic differences within it. If this were the Democratic Party, we'd be applauding the diversity of Republican <laughs> politics. And of course, the great, the great criticism of Trump has not really come, let me argue, from the political left, who have very little to say apart from Trump articulates all the caricatures we have of conservative politics. The great critiques of Trump have come from conservative intellectuals. So if you want a hopeful case from Trump, it's that these conservative intellectuals will play a leading role in reformulating the nature of conservative politics. Tom, should we look to the Democrats for rationality in this debate? I really uh, have to agree that there are many things that suggest continuity in American politics. The for example, the political geography of America has uh, has remained quite consistent over recent elections. And in the map, the red and blue maps of uh, this election will look very, very much like that of 2008 and, and 2012. So, Party is the dominant force in our politics. Uh, they've become more distinctive. It's an identity. It's uh, it's a form of tribalism, and that's why someone is so patently unqualified and unsuited for the White House can nonetheless garner the vast majority of, of Republican identifiers. But you know these things are determined uh, at the at the margin. And what is different about this election is the fact that Donald Trump, without really spending any money in the Republican primaries, managed to uh, bull his way through, systematically taking on one after the other candidate, not on really any grounds of of sort of policy differences, although there were some. Trump Trump understood the anxiety and the anger of working class whites and uh, was more responsive to them than any of the other Republican uh, candidates for the nomination. Tom, is that because 
the other candidates understood better than he did that you had to build a coalition in order to win a, an election. And so you could win the primaries by insulting lots of people, uh, but you would rely on those same people to then give you a credible majority as you ran into a general. Exactly. The whole, I mean, the media story was most fascinating in the primary season, not the general. When the general comes up, then then of course people have a reference point and that's their party and then they work work off that but trump never really had a strategy he was he was in this to satisfy himself you know he's a winner he's a big man and consequential and he took everyone by surprise but in the course of it at the end of the primaries two-thirds of uh of the public had very negative views of him. And in a year in which Republicans should have a reasonable shot at winning uh, the White House, they are uh, now on the, uh, on the verge of losing it, possibly by double digits and possibly by allowing Democrats to return to the majority, certainly in the Senate, maybe even in the House. So everything isn't different. We've seen many elements of politics that we're familiar with. But I'll tell you, Glenn, for someone living here and having watched American politics up close for over four decades, uh, I and, and many of my colleagues were terrified by the fact that this sort of fringe uh, sort of paranoia and populism, which heretofore had been relocated to sort of minor developments uh, outside the major party system actually managed to to win an, a nomination um, well, uh, of a major party and scare the hell out of the rest of the Tom, globe. Tom, I, 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 <laughs> I, I, I hear your pain. And in part, I share your pain. What you're eliding, or you might eventually get to, is, is the two words that need to form more part of this discussion, and that's Barack Obama. And you'll recall eight years ago, the guy that came from nowhere, that had run a student magazine as his substantial claim to executive authority, that had organized a community in Chicago, which is a, nobody's quite understood what that actually means, who'd soon served two years as a junior senator, came from nowhere on the basis of sheer charisma, capturing this very traditional ancient almost capacity of the American system to believe in its own transformational power. To explain Trump, I think you have to explain Barack Obama because they are both responsive to the same unique innate need within it, within the American system. And that's for some great hero to come along who will not have to worry about policy, but, short, but by sheer force of character will change things. And it's important to remember who he beat in 2008, this neophyte senator, he beat the most policy wonkish pres uh, pre presidential candidate of the modern era, Hillary Clinton. So I don't, this is not to excuse Trump and Trump's idiocy. It is to try and place Trump in a context within which we understand both parties as capable of being susceptible to demagoguery and populism. Well, can I disagree with that? My hackles are raised by the comparison of Obama and Trump. So let me say that I think Obama was a very astute politician, whereas Trump has done many things that would have sunk any other politician. And I think the, the context that explains Trump 
is the rise of social media. We can't explain Trumpism unless we understand the degradation of political discourse that has happened because of social media. And the problem with digital media, and this extends far beyond politics into many areas of our lives, is that contemporary technologies corrode human relationships. You take the generation that's grown up on smartphones, they've become devices that don't enable us to talk to each other, they enable us to avoid talking to each other. And the result has been a reduction in empathy and a struggle to form relationships that are built on trust. This is part of our culture now. And analyses of what uh, social media and online com communication has done to us is that it's led to a rise in narcissism and an inability to truly feel the feelings of others, to, to, to empathize with the feelings of others. And I think this has a lot to do with why we see someone as insulting, as crude, and as... Your, your analysis is spot on, but you need to apply it to Obama as well. Just because he, he embodies the charisma you like, he also exploited social media and creates a political climate whereas to question his progressive credential, credentials become, becomes either a version of unprogressive or, or racist. So Tom, I think there's far more that brings these two guys together. So your analysis is right. You should need to expand your case study base. So, so Tom, we're, we're commenting from afar. You're living it. I, I just think the comparison between Trump and Obama does simply doesn't hold up under scrutiny. Most importantly, he... You're right. He had minimal experience in government, but he was a state legislator and made something of himself there. He, you're right. He he broke into the national scene with a speech at the Democratic National Convention uh, when John Kerry was uh, nominated in in 2004, but was elected to the Senate and within a year. Senate Democratic leaders uh, were urging him to seek the Democratic nomination. These were people who were colleagues of Hillary's, uh, but who thought he had really quite extraordinary uh, ability. He, he's exceedingly bright. He's exceedingly knowledgeable on, uh, on policy. He wrote a serious uh, book uh, before he entered into politics. And this was not someone who came out of the blue. This is someone whose colleagues in politics saw this future ahead of him and really encouraged him to make the run. I have to tell you, I, I remember being at an Australian-American leadership dialogue meeting in Washington and in the couple of years before the 2008 election, and there were questions coming up about who's this Obama fellow and does he have any chance? And one of my pundit election colleagues said he has less than one-tenth of one percent of a chance of winning the nomination, much less the election. And I said, well, actually, I think you're wrong. And if I had to put money down, I'd say he'd win the nomination, and if he does, he'd, uh, he'd win the election. His talents, his skills uh, were really quite extraordinary. You're right, the appeal he was making to bridge the gap between the parties. We are not a nation of red states and blue states. We are the United States of America. You could argue was uh, was either naive or cynical, but it, it it sort of resonated with the public and helped him get elected. But then he faced from day one the 
absolutist opposition from the Republicans, like a parliamentary opposition party. Um, but my guess is uh, he will go down as one of our most successful presidents uh, with, uh, with the vantage point of, uh, of a historical uh, perspective. So let's, let's pick up Barbara's, I think, key point about the media and its role and social media. Um, it's very hard to talk about the trajectory of this election without talking about the media, though there's always a risk of mirroring the critique here that we make the election about the media rather than about a clash of ideas. But I'd like to spend a minute on the, uh, the role of the media as the gatekeeper for those ideas. Barbara, you said this has been the Twitter election, and indeed declining newspaper readership and the rise of social media has changed strategy and clearly messages for candidates it's encouraged more hunger for the personal and it's also provided platforms for insults in a way that we haven't seen before. We're used to elections that were shaped by television, as you noted from 1960, and the clever crafting of messages to address potential weaknesses on television that would then be relayed to the nation through the evening news. I mean, here's 73-year-old Ronald Reagan in his 1984 debate against Walter Mondale. I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit, for political purposes, my opponent's youth and inexperience. <laughs> the whole of America heard that line, and they heard it together, and it shaped perceptions. But in 2016, television and other commercial media have found the news agenda not being set by these set pieces, but by stories that break on Twitter and Instagram and, and Facebook. Barbara, why does this happen? How does this matter? And what's going on here? Well, I think it seems to me that there's actually a lot of continuity in the way that traditional media are covering the election. They're looking for things that are exciting, entertaining. Um, they're treating the campaign as a horse race. But as you've said, there are these, I uh, don't quite want to say issues, but moments that come into the campaign when Donald Trump is having this Twitter storm about Alicia Machado, for example. Um, it becomes part of the campaign. And I think what's happening is part of this Twitter revolution that we have uh, now the spread of misinformation, rumors, hate speech. We have these communities of, of people who are, they're just in an echo chamber. They're not actually engaging in genuine interchange with other groups. They're communicating only with people who have the same views. And it leads to a simplification of complex issues. Of course, you have 140 characters to, to say something. How can you not simplify? And it leads to this, uh, you know, it's this broader problem of lack of empathy, lack of genuine exchange. I think this is really, to me, looks to, to be the core problem that is being uncovered by this election campaign is a lack of genuine exchange. So Stephen Colbert talked about truthiness that you can say things that sound like they should be true, even though they're not. Um, how is it that this has so become to dominate the debate that, that, in a sense, Tom's opening point about facts no longer matter? How is this possible? Why are there no consequences? Well, I, I, mean, I, I, I again, I share part of Ara's analysis, but uh, it, if you thought about the, the way segregation was understood in the 1950s and 60s across the American South... It didn't require a Twitter account to engender and spread that kind of racism and, 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 and the hate speech that goes with it. So the idea that social media has created an outlet purely for 
hatred and extremism, I, I think is probably overstated. I, I would also, I think we lack the political and public vocabulary for dealing with conservative politics any longer. And I'd say that even of, in a country like Australia, which has currently a, a small C conservative government running it, that we don't, and it's, this is apparent in, in, in public debate on university campuses, we don't have a way of dealing with conservative thinking and conservative solutions to social problems that aren't grounded increasingly in caricature or that the conservative approach is in some way alien or racist or opposed to everything that the progressives do. Now, I don't think it takes social media to propagate that. I think it has a role. But I think some of the, some of the problem is, is a, an hegemonic um, notion that the left broadly construed has about what is legitimate for in terms of political debate. And we need to develop or rediscover a conservative vocabulary. We need to discover, let me suggest, a greater uh, vocabulary of ideological diversity because we're, we're losing that, I think, as a as a civilization, if I can use that grand, grand label. Well, I just wanted to, to disagree with Tim a little bit. I think, of course, there's always been hate groups and extremist views in, in public. But what's happening now is that the I think there's a qualitative difference when you have the Republican candidate saying the sorts of things that he's saying. There is something about the the normalization, the mainstreaming of of hate speech that is makes this election campaign different. We call him on it constantly. If you look at the New York Times today, there's a thousand word, just a, a, a literal verbatim transcription of every absurd thing he said. Yeah. So in in some ways, he's he's an exception. And we keep saying he's developed some, some some sort of immunity by profusion. He talks such nonsense that he's never called to account for any one piece. But I, I think he actually is being called to account. And the nonsense that he speaks with such regularity is actually costing him votes. Well, he's still got 40% or so of the get, But I think you'd get even a, an even less accomplished and even more problematic Republican nominee would always garner that sort of ballpark figure. So let's turn from the media to policy substance and this thing that candidates clearly struggle to, even if they want to uh, talk about struggle to get coverage for. And Tom, if I may turn to you on this, one of the surprises looking from afar has been the key issues that have had little or no coverage in the campaign, of which climate change would seem to be obvious. There was no moderator question on climate change in any of the presidential debates or in the vice presidential debate, only one mention from a, from the floor, from a questioner. And yet there are clear differences in their climate policies. Hillary Clinton used a question on manufacturing uh, in the first debate to make climate change about clean energy and jobs. And Donald Trump, by contrast, denied suggesting that climate change is a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese, despite tweeting exactly those words in 2012. To take the example of climate change, Tom, why has climate change not played out in this campaign? I think in part because there's uh, a sort of helplessness in that each party now has a distinctive position, unlike, say, a decade ago when there were Republicans who took the issue seriously and were moving ahead with efforts to deal with it. But now the only, if I may borrow the term, politically correct position uh, if you're a Republican on climate change is to deny it and say it doesn't exist. And it, it really is an all-in-out 
rejection of, uh, of science, and it's purely ideological, and it's a little scary and reflects something that's serious in, uh, in American politics. There's no doubt about what the Democratic position is or the Republican position. The, the platforms are clear. Hillary Clinton's website is filled with uh, materials uh, on this. The fact that it doesn't get discussed is, is one, because the moderators don't bring it up because they think it will go nowhere, sadly, uh, but, but also because it's, it's not really a, an occasion, I think, for resolving uh, the election itself. Glenn, an important matter to keep in mind is that campaigns are not good settings for the the exploration of policy. Uh, the efforts that lead up to them are the the mounting of uh, of of campaign broad campaign themes and specific policies and platforms are an essential part of the of the policy process in the United States, but, but most Americans don't have a clue of, uh, of any of those policies, except to the extent that they've gleaned a position by looking at the leaders of the party with which uh, they identify. So there's an important new book out, Glenn, uh, it's called Democracy for Realists by two political scientists in the in the U.S., Chris Aiken and Larry Bartels, and and it's sort of reminding us that this notion of deliberative democracy with the public it just doesn't fit the realities of ordinary Americans busy in their lives with not much attention paid or interest in the policy process. They want conditions to be better, but they don't have a clue as to how as to how to get there. The, there's a division of labor. And if you look at the assessments of the three debates are that uh, Hillary Clinton won all three. She was sort of relentless in uh, in pursuing the differences fundamental differences between the parties, as well as what she sees and most of the country sees as the, as the uh, offensive uh, nature of much of uh, Donald Trump's uh, uh, campaign and appeals. But we have one policy-oriented uh, candidate and one who doesn't have a clue uh, other than a sort of general position he's uh, He's taken. He's he's a good marketer. He's he senses an opening in the market. He goes for it and he plays on their their sort of fears and frustrations. But he doesn't have anything approaching a set of policy recommendations to to deal with any of those. And and you know that's not all new in our in our politics. Uh, we tend to operate at a much more level. Politics is about identities, uh, group identities and attachments, and it's almost tribalistic. Uh, policy gets, uh, uh, gets dealt with in the governing stage, not in the campaign stage. In 2012, four years ago when Obama was running, um, we should recall the great cosmopolitan that ran four years prior to that in 2008, the guy that would... Uh, 
you know, heal the heal the breach and uh, bring hope and change. Four years later, his bumper sticker was "Bin Laden is dead, General Motors is alive." He killed a Muslim and he kept alive a greenhouse gas producing industry. If you want an illustration of how discourse has been downgraded to that kind of bumper sticker, I think it it doesn't start with Trump. Trump has inhabited and exploited a downgraded public discourse. And I think both parties, both wings are responsible for that. There's a lot of truth in what you just said, but anytime I hear anyone try to try to make the argument that the parties are comparable and all of this is, in my view, well, they're not perfect just missing the whole story of American are. politics. Barbara, in parliamentary systems, we argue that the policy debate is important for legitimacy after election, that in a sense you use the election to put forward ideas that you then have a, a mandate to implement. And that same language is used in the United States. But that seems largely to have vanished. And Thomas just argued that it's no longer part in the sense of, of the election process. Is that your perspective? Yes, I think that's the most unusual aspect of this campaign is that both candidates are saying the other one is illegitimate. You have Hillary Clinton saying that Donald Trump is temperamentally unfit and unqualified, and you have Donald Trump saying that Hillary should be in jail. It's it's absolutely extraordinary. This has never happened before that the legitimacy of the process has been called into question to such an extent. And it is going to be, I think, a difficulty that uh, Hillary Clinton will confront as president. So take climate change. What would it mean if a Hillary Clinton presidency, if the Republicans simply refuse to deal with any of the COP15 outcomes, for example, and just argue that it's that she has no mandate to make any changes in this area? How does she mount a case when it hasn't been debated? Glenn, mandates don't matter. Uh, numbers of Democrats and Republicans in the Congress matter. And there simply is no role. Obama had a pretty big victory in 2008, but it meant nothing to the Republican opposition uh, at all. And uh, we've had a lot of research now that supposed public opinion on issues has uh has relatively little influence on the course of policy. These are two competitive parties with distinct ideological differences, and they are engaged in sort of tribal warfare. And for Hillary to talk about climate change uh, during the campaign would not produce one more Republican vote for it in the Congress. And it's really important to understand the mandate idea no longer has any meaning if it ever did in American politics. <laughs> Tom, this is a podcast for policy wonks. We want to give them some hope <laughs> that it matters. <laughs> but elections have policy consequences. Absolutely. And so it's really important, uh, therefore, to understand what those consequences are. We have a pretty clear notion of what what things would look like under various election outcomes, including not just the presidential election, but the Senate and the House elections. And, and uh, it would tell us a great deal about what the direction of policy would be and the possibilities. Uh, so the campaigns uh, and discussion don't have to be highbrow for them to be consequential. As we turn for home, I'd like to touch briefly on implications for Australia. 
Hillary Clinton is amongst the architects of the US pivot toward the Asia-Pacific, again a region and a policy with little airtime in this election. Yet it's interesting to contemplate the implications of an isolationist, aggressive stance toward China by Donald Trump, or presumably a continuation of foreign policy toward China from Hillary Clinton. Trade deals have occupied some attention in the debate, NAFTA in particular, but also TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Here's what Hillary Clinton said about the TPP on a visit to Australia in 2012. This TPP sets the gold standard in trade agreements to open, free, transparent, fair trade, the kind of environment that has the rule of law and a level playing field. So, Tim, what are the implications? If I can just reference back to the conversation we just had about climate change, because I think it captures why she's trying to do this double flip on TPP. She recognises that uh, what we used to call blue dog Democrats, those Democrats that lean democratic but are capable of being plucked off by the Republicans, and in this case by Trump, are very sceptical of claims grounded in uh, climate change uh, and the mechanisms necessary to confront it. And for the same reason, they are sceptical of claims that greater free trade, uh, a a NAFTA on steroids, which they see in Hillary, building on the destructive work of her husband, according to their interpretation. These are reasons that Hillary Clinton avoids these uh, postures significantly on both of these, and she would rather TPP go away. She's a free trader. Any great American president believes in free trade. It's why America went from being a diddly squat, distant trading outpost of British North America to the most powerful global economic power in world history. It did that not through mercantilism and protectionism, although it had moments when it thought it could, and Trump is pretending to recreate one. It it did it through free trade, and she knows this, but she also knows that the disaffected 35-year-old man in Ohio, who is poorer in relative terms than his father, and who's being chastised for working in a greenhouse gas producing industry, he, he's hearing her, her politicking on climate change and, is, is, and is, is not convinced. So she's avoiding the issue. Tom? Yeah, you're right about uh, Hillary's traditional position on, on this issue, as well as uh, her husband's. Uh, but the, the whole scene has changed. And the big change is actually within the Republican Party, which always provided the most votes for trade agreements, whether the president was a Republican or Democrat. There were a, a block, maybe a third of the Democrats would support these deals. Now, the number of Democrats is uh, is down to a handful uh and they all live on the West Coast, <laughs> Washington, Oregon, and California, who are very concerned about TPP. But the Republican belief in free trade is, uh, has collapsed within uh, Congress and uh, among rank and file. Actually, now more Democratic identifiers approve support free trade than Republicans do out in the country as a whole. But the politics were were clear. Bernie Sanders came on uh, suddenly and and quite strongly, and and Hillary made some decisions about what it would take to win the nomination and and win the election. Uh, I think she believes in the pivot still, but she knows until programs are put in place to deal with the losers of uh, 
of uh, trade agreements along with technology, then there's no way of getting any trade agreement through the Congress. And so this will be put off, delayed. She's, she's made it absolutely clear that she, uh, she is uh, opposed to it in the campaign and she will, if elected president, she will continue to be opposed to it. And therefore, it's, it's going to uh, certainly make much more difficult our efforts to strengthen our interest and coalitions of, uh, of allies in uh, Asia. And it's, uh, it's, it's very unfortunate. It's, uh, it's simply a reality. Barbara, to close, does it matter to Australia who wins the 2016 presidential election? It matters a lot. It matters for foreign policy, it matters for trade, it matters for the future of the earth, it matters arguably for the future of democracy, and that's why every four years we sit around here wondering, why don't we get a say? <laughs> we certainly follow it at the obsession. Tim, does it matter? Probably not as much as, as Aura suggests, though I'm in sympathy with that interpretation. Uh, Australia needs big trading partners, which is why it uh, loves America and has a, and a, has a more problematic love affair with with uh, China, but it also needs a protector in military terms that shares some of its um, ethos, some of its values, democratic and otherwise. And in, 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 in of course, it sees uh, uh, America in that in that role. I think if you tracked the changes of American administrations and how it impacts on uh, Australia, I think you would find far more continuity and far less change that an everyday Australian would experience as a consequence of who wins. Of course, if Trump wins and Trump were able to actualize his agenda, well, maybe, yes, you would see a difference in terms of uh, uh, free trade being curtailed and the cutting of uh, military spending and making Australia stand more on its own. But I think if you look at the electoral map, um, I shouldn't commit to prophecy, usually wrong, um, I, it, it seems to me extraordinary, given the electoral, the, the mathematics of the electoral college, that, that we're going to see a Trump victory and that, it's, that Hillary will win, and Australia will experience the world in much the same way as it has um, since America existed. China hasn't been a major feature of the campaign, though it gets mentioned in passing. Much more focus on Russia. What are the implications for American-Chinese relationships between the two contenders? I think it's only come up with Donald Trump's dated references to uh, to Chinese manufacturing and uh, taking jobs of Americans. It fits the, you know, the uh, the late 1990s, but it uh, it's not relevant to China's position today at all. Currency manipulation was a problem, and. Uh, that, together with other things, cost uh, the U.S. Uh, a lot of jobs at the time, but the world has uh, moved on from there. I think Clinton and uh, her advisors care a lot about, uh, about Asia and consider the relationship with China a very important one to, to manage and maintain. I think she will be elected president and she will carry on the, the belief that the United States uh, plays a unique role in the world in spite of the rise of China and uh, changes in, 
in sort of global position and resources uh, and the like, and and that Australia is a is our best friend. Uh, and even though our interests uh, at times uh, part because of particular matters like uh, uh, mining uh, interest and sales of commodities and other things that the values that hold us together are deep and they've carried through Democratic and Republican administrations. And however the Republican Party is rebuilt or replaced after Donald Trump, I suspect that will not change, that that uh, we're not going to be provocative with China, but we're going to be we're going to be forceful. It's a, I mean, it's a, it's a dangerous world all around, and and nothing is more important in the foreign policy arena than than uh, managing, uh, uh, not containing China, but managing uh, its entrance uh, into a responsible position that enhances global security. Tom, you know both America and Australia extremely well. How should Australians be viewing this election? I've been in touch with a good number of Australians along the way, and they've been utterly bewildered and terrified by uh, by developments, but have now uh, come to realize this is uh, this is unusual. Uh, and we dodged a bullet. The threat to our democratic system has been thwarted, but our politics uh, remain uh, exceedingly uh, conflictual and and uh, passionate. And as I said, I don't think we will return to uh, feeling good about our democracy until we once again have two governing parties uh, who understand the design of our constitutional system was built around the currency of compromise. And right now that's scorned uh, in one of the parties among elites and, and voters. And, and that's a, that's a formula for dysfunction. Uh, So I, I think Australians ought to be reassured uh, that a uh, familiar and experienced and ex- you know quite able, knowledgeable and intelligent person is about to uh, man the helm uh, uh, in the White House, but that so much depends on what happens in the congressional elections and what happens in in the the years after Trump, especially within the Republican Party. Barbara, as a historian, thinking about the long pattern here, how should we be thinking about this election? Well, what strikes me looking back at the nearest analog, which is 1964 when Barry Goldwater lost in a landslide to uh, Lyndon Johnson, is that on the one hand, you know, the Republican Party seems to go through these convulsions every 52 years. It's very odd. But what happened in 1964 was different from what is happening today in two important respects. One is that although Goldwater was regarded as an extremist, he had a large, very well-organized grassroots base behind him. Trump is running a much more personalistic campaign that's about him and is not based on an organization. And Goldwater was 
he had a sophisticated intellectual ideology, which Trump does not have. So I think one of the things that strikes me is that Goldwater created a new conservatism and set in motion a party realignment that changed American politics. So his short-term defeat had very long-term consequences, but that's because of these other underlying conditions. I suspect that Trump will not set in motion similar long-term effects, but on the other hand, if you look at what people said in 1964, what they concluded you know, about what to expect in the future, no one predicted what happened. Tim, what will be the consequences of Donald Trump? Well, to extend that 1964 analogy, uh, it's worth pointing out that though the Republicans were wiped out at the polls that year, they then went on to win the next five of the next six presidential elections, um, which ended with a remaking of their politics in, in what we call now the Reagan Revolution. So if I were being optimistic um, uh, if you were to be a, con a conservative optimist, uh, you would say, well, this it can't be worse than Trump. It has to get better and it will lead to a reformulation. And the movement of the Republican Party, which Tom has analyzed really very well here, from a, a pressure group concerned with ideological purity to a party that can win political power. Um, so that's if you're a, a hopeful, optimistic conservative, that's what you would see as the result of Trump. The pessimistic conservative would just see the, the, the death of conservative politics as an organizing principle of the American political system and the ongoing uh, dominance of, of a left, leftish progressivism. But, uh, but I think America still has that capacity. I know we're talking policy here, but we forget just how far its politics remain ideological. And those ideologies are of long standing. They don't disappear simply because a, a New York real estate magnet uh, uh, corrupts corrupts the nature of the discourse. They will reassert themselves, and you will move back to something like healthy two party competition. Tom, what should we be looking for on the first Tuesday in November? I think you should go in ex expecting a comfortable Clinton victory, but does that mean five points or ten point margin, which in turn will likely tip majorities in the Senate and the House as well? Right now, I think the most likely outcome is uh, Clinton winning by the high single digits, winning over 350 electoral votes, having a, a narrow Democratic majority in the Senate, which is critical for Supreme Court appointments and staffing the administration and getting policy items to the floor. But the House is the, is the real question mark. Uh, experts think Democrats will be lucky to get 20 of the 30 seats they need, but if uh, her margin enlarges and and it's it's double digit, uh, they could actually find themselves back in the majority. That said, it's two years to uh, get something done because by 2018 midterm election, Republicans would probably return to the majorities in one or both houses. And with that. Thank you to my guests, Associate Professor Barbara Keyes of the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies here at the University of Melbourne. Thanks, Glenn. Associate Professor in American Politics and Director of the Graduate School of Humanities at the University of Melbourne, Dr. Timothy Lynch. Thank you very much. 
and in California, Dr. Thomas Mann, a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution and resident scholar at the Institute of Governmental Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. Thanks, Glenn. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. I'm Glenn Davis. Thank you for listening to The Policy Shop. Remember to subscribe and review this podcast on iTunes. Catch you next time. The Policy Shop is produced by Owen Hahasi and Heather Jarvis, with audio engineering by Gavin Neighbour and research by Ellie MacDonald. You can find this podcast at pursuit.unimelb.edu.au and remember to subscribe to The Policy Shop on iTunes. Copyright University of Melbourne 2016.